we have a uniquely qualified source to weigh in on the stresses of thought leadership. That person is Karen Dillon, and she's the co-author of a new book called The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems, and What to Do About It. In the book that Karen and her co-author Rob Cross recently published, they lay out 14 types of microstresses, little things that most of us don't recognize, but which impede our performance anyway. And just as important, they explain how we should handle these microstresses. What's more, Karen has become a recognized thought leader on her own. First at Harvard Business Review, where she was editor for eight years, and for the past five years as editorial director of a consulting firm called Banyan Global Family Business Advisors. She has been a researcher at the Clayton Christensen Institute since 2016. She co-authored three books, and one of those books became a New York Times bestseller. So Karen, you have a you and Rob Cross have a big book, and I, you were so gracious to give me an advance copy. And I'm not entirely through all the book, but before we get into the prescriptions, let's just talk about the the books, particularly around the three types of ways that microstresses affect people negatively. Sure. So let me just describe what we mean by microstresses and where this came from. So Rob Cross and I were working on a project of trying to basically identify in high performers, people who had been identified by their own organization as high performers, what they do better or differently than the rest of us, really just what could we learn from them? So we expected to get kind of pearls of wisdom or patterns of how they were just more effective than the rest of us. But what we found as we were starting to get deeper and deeper into the interviews was something really surprising that even these people who looked like they had everything going for them, their, their organizations had told us these were their high performers and we had an equal number of men and women that once you got past the surface, a lot of them were kind of holding on by a thread. Um, they were doing well, but you know there wasn't too much depth there below the doing well on the surface. And what was really fascinating is that we found, and, and again, deep dive interviews with, all, with uh, 300 people and then more from Rob's previous research, uh, was that it was seldom any one big thing, any one big stress that we would understand and relate to, death in the family, health issue, um, childcare issue that's really significant. It, it was sort of a hundred little things that was really putting them on edge and, and, and making them feel like they were just not in control of their day. And we didn't even have language to talk about what we meant by that. What were we identifying? What was this many little things going on? And so we came up with the phrase microstress to identify this sort of invisible, tiny stresses that happen to all of us throughout the day, just in the course of a normal day that happens specifically through in, in, in interactions with other people that we're close to personally or professionally, who that happened so briefly that we literally almost don't even register that it happened. But over time, cumulatively, they take a really enormous toll on us. So, so the idea of microstress is this kind of invisible force that you probably don't even have language for, or hopefully you do now, that you might not even pause to think about because it's so quick and so incidental. I can, I can deal with that. But you don't have one. You have dozens that happen in a day and they happen in the week and then they happen in the month and they really add up. So that's the kind of big idea came from that research, a surprising finding. And we categorize the microstress in three broad buckets. And I think most people will relate to probably all of these. But the first bucket is microstresses that drain your personal capacity to get things done. So just things that happen to you from the moment you wake up that kind of feel like they get in your way to staying on top of what you're trying to do at home or, or at work that just sort of make you feel like you're walking through jello all day long or you're behind from the moment you look at your inbox. And there are a bunch of examples of this, but 
One that people don't think about, but that really took a toll on the people in our research are, we'll call them small performance misses, meaning one of your colleagues sort of just under delivers slightly what he or she was working on with you or for you. And then now you're faced with, do I have to pick up the ball, finish this, my own work's put on the back burner. And it's never from bad intentions. Microstress is in our definition is not from toxic, horrible people. It's from people who are just themselves overworked, juggling too many balls. All of us are trying to figure out which balls can we drop, not how do I excel at my, at my performance. So just a small performance mess. And I'll give you an example from my daughter's life. She called me last week, sort of all agitated because she's working on um, an academic paper. She's in their master's program at college. And the colleague she was working on with had missed my daughter's edits in the previous draft. And so they were now working on version control. No one meant to do it. It just happened. It was a small performance miss, not the end of the world. But now she had to go back and put all of those in again, losing the kind of next layer of thinking. And that's just one example of the kind of micro stresses that we all have that happen that drain our capacity to get things done. That's the kind of stuff you can see on your calendar, on sticky notes all over your computer. That's a little more tangible and you recognize the kinds of stresses that are getting in the way of getting things done. Second category is one that we probably don't think about as easily because it's not sticky notes all over your laptop like I have here, but micro stresses that deplete our emotional reserves. And this is just, I think of it as like when you wake up in the morning, you sort of have a well of emotional strength to get through the day and just the things to start draining, draining that well so that by the time you're at the end of the day, your emotions are frayed and nothing big happened, nothing terrible happened, but, but small things just added to your stress throughout the day. And a good example of this is what we call secondhand stress. Most of us have worked with or live with people who are stressed more than us, or at least stressed at least as much as us, or it's just generally stressed. And we pick up on their stress and now we're stressed too. So it didn't happen to us. In theory, we shouldn't be worrying about it, but we are now stressed. We're caught up in their cauldron of stress and people who are chicken littles at work, you know, everything's always terrible. And then you sort of get sucked into that or loved ones that you care about. They're, the expression, I feel your pain. There's some really interesting research that says that's literally true. The mirror neurons in our brain make our bodies feel like we are experiencing pain when someone we care about is experiencing pain, you know, within eyesight of us. And so picking up on secondhand stress can really, again, derail you. And it's nothing that specifically happened to you, but it's just you're aware of it and you're sort of swimming in it now. That will slow your performance, how you feel about yourself, how you feel about your day. And then the last category are micro stresses that challenge your identity. And a simple example of this one is just a negative or draining interaction with friends and family. And for most of us, you know, the relationship's not in question, but I don't feel like a good mom when I snap at my kids in the morning, or I don't feel like a supportive uh, sister, you know, when my sister and I are squabbling over something to do with, you know, care for my aging parents. Um, it's nothing terrible. The relationship's not bad, but we have some kind of an interaction that was draining or, or, or negative in some way. And then now suddenly the effect on that is I don't feel like the best version of me right now. And again, all of those things, those three samples I can, I've given you can happen in any given day. And the, we add another dozen that are similar to that. That's the effect of micro stresses. No one thing, they all sound silly individually, but they add up to something really significant over time. And the net impact of that, if somebody is suffering from many of the, you have 14 common microstresses and not really doing what you and Rob say, here's a better way to handle this. If somebody's really kind of burdened by more microstresses than you'd wish on anybody, what's the impact on their work and on their life? It can be very significant. Um, it, we, we interviewed some interesting neuroscientists and, and a neurologist, and the effect of even these small microstresses during the day 
It's the same toll that any form of stress, a bigger form of stress would take. It, it layers up more slowly, but it's doing things physiologically to us in the same way that major stresses would be. So, you know, you can have all the metabolic issues that come with stress, raised elevated heart rate, elevated adrenaline surges, all of those things, but your mind almost doesn't know why. So you're sort of tired at the end of the day, but you it happens so quickly. It doesn't imprint on your brain the same way a major stress would. So physiologically, they're taking their toll and they stack up throughout the day. I liken it to um, you're trying to carry a very full teacup across the room. And the morning, the teacup's not that full. And then just imagine people kept putting drops and drops and drops into it. And by the end of the day, by the time in so many cases, we're coming home to our families, a teacup is literally ready to flow if you do any little tip. So one extra microstress can make it spill over. And what happens is it's not the one microstress that happens at home over dinner or squabbling about whose chore was supposed to be what. It's all of the ones that have happened before that, but it tips it over. And then we are not our, our best self. So physically, it can take a toll on us in terms of exhaustion, our motivation, and at work. I mean, just think about the example of the small performance misses. We're, we're scrambling to keep up, to react rather than proactively shape the work we do. We're just never our best self. We're never feeling on top of our ability to be creative and be collaborative if we're always sort of covering the sort of microstress shortfall. So um, it's not good for us in any way. And being overloaded with it is really a significant, as we saw with these high performers, so many of them really were teetering around the edge of full on burnout. And it would sound silly for them to say, I'm burning out because I have too many emails or I'm burning out because my colleague keeps not proofing the paper. It's all of those things that happen at the same time. And that that really can take an enormous toll. Interesting. And it just makes me wonder how many people suffer from that. And they say, I'm burned out. I don't like this profession anymore. I need to do something completely different. Change careers, go into a new job. And since they really haven't been managing the micro stresses, find themselves in the same boat. I think that's a really good observation because one of our key insights about all of this, and we've we've tried to think about it in our own lives too, is that it's not necessarily the relationships that are the problem. The relationships can be complex and, and full and rich and all the things that relationships are, but it's just the interactions. So it doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't have to fully change your job without trying to figure out, can I can I change some of the interactions with my colleagues or some of the interactions with other stakeholders? in a way that is going to be less likely to create micro stress rather than fully changing and never addressing again the new form of interactions you'll have at the at the next place too it's it's a problem for all of us but it doesn't have to be an, a black and white problem all or nothing it, you can make it better by beginning to shift or push back on some of the interactions that create micro stress for you okay so now let's apply this to the kind of the, our two audiences here one is uh, thought leaders themselves and the other are what we call thought leadership professionals and what it simply they are the people who help experts become experts you know the editors the speaker coaches the event organizers the marketing people social media marketers were there to help thought leaders and their organizations get known for their expertise and you are both so i think you can you can talk from a, a source of real experience on both counts. Let's start with the micro stresses on thought leaders. And what have you seen in your career? And what have you seen uh, on the part of other thought leaders about the, the most common micro stresses that affect people who are up there talking publicly, writing things for public consumption about some expertise they have in the world? It's a deep well of potential microstresses there because it's a very it's a very challenging position. You have something to say, uh, and it's important to you to say, and it feels a breakthrough or new or original. 
you're not in control of getting that message out really in, in so many ways. You depend on gatekeepers. You depend on someone asking you to speak at the conference or you depend on an editor saying yes to your article. So the likelihood of one of the subcategories of personal capacity ones are misalignment of roles or priorities where you're working with people where you have slightly different goals for what your thought leadership will, will look like and be or small performance misses, somebody that you think is important in the chain letting you down in some way or just the surge in volume of demands that you have in your everyday life to share your thought leadership, continue to develop it while presumably there's a day job for most people, right? It's continuing to work on whatever the existing thing was or harnessing the old things. It's really, it's really, really hard to come up with new, genuine thought leadership and then make sure the world sees it, acknowledge it. You're required to work with other people to do that and get that out. It's not a solo thing. The ideas might be, but for most of us, it's, it's collaborative. And the second you add other people into the equation, all of the possibilities for small misses and, and misaligned priorities are, are all there. Um, and then another interesting piece of that is that as a thought leader, you, you probably are responsible for other people playing some role in, in your thought leadership. So you're a leader in some ways too. And that's a micro stress too, feeling responsible for other people, for a second author or a third author. Are you giving them the right responsibility? Are you advocating for them enough? Are you putting them in the right place? Are you working with them well? We don't, we often think of the problems, the stresses people cause us, if we have to manage them or worry about their well-being or their success. But what we think is that actually people sometimes care too much. They really, they, not too much, but they care a lot. They really want to do right by that person. And that's loaded with micro stress because you're suddenly worrying not just about yourself and getting your own message out and being seen and known and heard and your idea getting out there, but you're worrying about the other people who are playing some role in that. And then the third category challenges to your identity, that just has to be enormous, right? Because you think it's just, it's thought leadership and it's original and it's important. And somehow the world doesn't see it the same way you do, doesn't tell you. It's just the challenge of that little rejection from some academic journal you've never really cared about or that little you don't get to present in some way. Those things can challenge your identity just in small things. Am I actually a great thought leader? Is this really a good idea? Have I been well served by the people I've been working with that you can sort of doubt everything because the small, normal slings and arrows of anyone trying to get their ideas out in the world are, are real. So I think there's so much potential for micro stress in trying to share something that's profoundly important to you, presumably, and trying to make sure the world sees that. I just think at almost every juncture, you need you need the force field up because it's going to be hard. Yeah, I think I agree with all that. Having published my book on thought leadership a year ago, and one of one of the biggest micro stresses for me is seeing the negative Amazon review. Yes, yes, that's true. Right, that that's right to your challenge your identity. But I'll also tell you something else is interesting about that. And this is one of the things we talk about in the book is that for all of us who are sort of high achievers, we probably go right to the negative. But lots of social science research tells us that negative interactions and negative re review, for example, have up to five times the impact of a positive, right? So you focus on that negative one and that you're thinking about it. Who wrote it? What did they not understand? That's so unfair. We, we got one on the book. We had, we've had a lot of five stars. And then we had one three with no description of whatsoever. And they're like, who wrote that? Why did they write nothing? Why did they give us a three? And it, it, it burns in you, even though we had a whole bunch of fives. So, but the impact of a negative interaction or a negative like that is really powerful. So the key point of the book is that removing even a few of those negatives can lift, can elevate you above some of the micro stress because so often we focus on what do we add to be stronger? How do I get stronger to deal with the stress? But maybe we should say a higher leverage thing is to actually see if you can remove a few of the negatives because that will have a more material impact on you quickly. Interesting. 
So if a, a person who aspired to be a recognized, a world-recognized thought leader, an academic, a consultant who was just doing some really interesting research and you thought this person has potential and they in fact had the aspiration to be well-known for their ideas, what would you prepare that? How would you prepare that person for the micro stresses that will come to them as they go from aspiring thought leader to recognized thought leader? Well, I would do some. I would do some things, but just as an editor, as a as a former gatekeeper type of person, that I, that I would just put in perspective for them that um, a greatest idea can fall in a forest. But if you know, if nobody if nobody reads it or hears about it or knows about it, it's had absolutely no impact. And therefore, you need to work really, really hard to make sure people understand your idea. If you've communicated it well, you've shaped the message. So that's that's unrelated to microstress. Maybe that's challenging your identity, but. You, if people don't understand what you're talking about when you talk to them about it, you're you're not there yet. You, it may be brilliant, but until they get it, it's not brilliant to them. So that's that's the sort of foundational thing I would say. And then I would say just understand that with rejections and feedback and comments and attempts to work your way up the food chain, um, there are going to be a lot of negative feelings that you know that come from that. And one of our things is confrontational conversations, and we don't mean hostile, horrible. It's just one in which it doesn't go the way you want it to, and you end up feeling a little bit bad after that, that's going to happen to you on your journey to get your ideas out there in the world. So recognizing that and not letting it sort of frame the idea or your day is, is finding ways to rise above that. And just, you know, kind of developing a thicker skin to, to believing, not letting your identity feel challenged. If you're sure of your idea, you just have to keep at it until you find a way for people to, to be on board with you, but not letting yourself be derailed quickly. But it's, it's super hard because you're not in control. There are gatekeepers and you're not fully in control of getting that message out there. So you're going to have to kind of keep rising above the things that are going to challenge your identity, deplete your emotional reserves and get in your way of getting things done. That, that I would say it's going to be a constant battle for you, but you can do it. So let's talk about the identity challenging microstress for thought leaders that thought leadership professionals, especially editors, can induce, which is called rewriting or editing their prose. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, just, that's a microstress, right? It is indeed a micro stress. It's it's very difficult. It is very difficult to do that. But I but I I have just actually I'll, I'll think of how I reframed it in my own life. I love the opportunity to rewrite, fix, get feedback on whatever I'm working on because it will make it better. I actually have so I've reframed it from I have to respond to all this stuff to this feedback is really valuable because either I'm not communicating well, so I need to do it better. Something, some, if they're asking questions that seem annoying and wrong and not on point, or they're trying to cut my main thing, I, I should say to myself, I need to do this better. So this is a great opportunity to be better, be stronger. It's something I learned from my work with Clay Christensen. He used to have a sign outside of his office that said anomalies wanted. And it was his version of saying, tell me what's wrong with my theories. I, I want to make them stronger and better. I welcome this and then we'll have a really good conversation about it. And so every conversation was a chance to, could it be better? Could I make it better? Could it, could it be stronger? And you almost, you engage people in that quest to, could it be better? If you're not arms crossed, you know, dealing with the, the stress of the, the rewrite, it's not saying it's not hard, but you can reframe it in your mind to make what would be a purely negative uh, interaction, just getting these the, the feedback that you don't particularly value or like to what do I need to do better to make this to make this more understood? So we're all human. That's really hard. But if you can reframe it, I think it will not feel like a micro stress as much as a challenge that your identity can, can overcome. Because I am a good 
thinker and I'm a good writer and I can get I can get there. So let's switch to the thought leadership professionals, you know, the folks who are doing the editing and, and doing the speaker coaching and all that. What are the biggest micro stresses have you seen? And I guess you you are a thought leadership professional too at Banyan, right? The people stuff. So you're not just a thought leader, you're a thought leadership professional currently. And you were a thought leadership professional at HBR. So well, uh, thinking about the thought leadership professional, what are the biggest micro stresses that for those people and how should they deal with them? So I guess a couple of things that I think of in that role are one are, I think I fall in the category of really, really wanting the people I'm working with to be successful. And I think I, hopefully most people that fall into my category do. And so that's the care too much. You know, I really want them to, to be successful. I want people to see their ideas. And you want to be able to promise them the world. I will get you into this publication or we'll get you a TED Talk or whatever. And you can't really control that all of the time. And, and that's that's where you have the misalignment of roles and, and priorities that um, can just happen with the best of relationships. So for me, a really critical thing to do better so that you don't find yourself misaligning and, and being sort of stressed out by them not succeeding the way you want is to, just to be kind of constantly checking in on what's realistic. Even like, what's our goal with this article? You don't have to be like, what's our goal to get you in the pantheon of, you know, a full on main stage TED talk. Maybe let's, let's take it back a bit. What's our goal with this article? Who do you want to reach? What's the point of it? Why are you excited about this? Having those kinds of conversations can help me as a gatekeeper um, or professional um, get you to a better place. And then you and I are both aligned and your expectations are in the right place. Mine are in the right place. And I'm also going to be better because I'm going to be able to take the right steps to get you to, I want this article to be seen by entrepreneurs. That That's a goal. Okay. So then we're going to do something different than that. Or I'm working out ideas that I want to eventually do a talk on, but for right now, we just kind of want some feedback from people. Okay. We can work with that. So having the conversations, asking good questions on both sides is a good way to avoid the misalignment of roles or priorities. And um, caring about the people you work with and wanting them to do well is a good thing, but you you can also sort of coach them to be realistic about what's happening, what you can do, what you can't do, what they need to get better at. Like, not, you know, not being Pollyannish about it. You know, you, you need to work on the writing. We'll find a way to do it. We'll get a writing coach or whatever it is. So I think giving people kind of realistic feedback by letting you know that they're on their side is a good way to not have that relationship sort of tee up with micro stress. So have you ever had a thought leader, you know, an inarguable thought leader who submitted an article, whether for HBR or whatever, and you thought there's some good ideas here, but there's going to be heavy editing, maybe rewriting. It's his or her ideas, but, it, you know, we got to do heavy pencil on this. The thought leader sees the edits and says, I don't like your edits. It's not in my voice, not in my voice anymore. Yeah. I think you've worsened it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Have you ever run into that in your career? I have. And I've run into it, it even before my time at HBR where I was helping someone guest write a column that was in his voice. And uh, he was used to working with another editor slash writer to help him do that. And that editor slash writer was brilliant at kind of helping create the voice. And then when I did my stepped in to do my turn, I, I remember he said to me, it doesn't sound like me. And I remember thinking, it literally sounds exactly like you. What it probably doesn't sound like is my colleague who did a really good job of, of working on it. And we had to figure out a path forward because, okay, um, it's that's that's a challenge. What's happening to them is a challenge of identity, right? It's, it's a micro stress of this doesn't make me feel like me. This is not the message I wanted. You've ruined my message or you're making it to X or Y or Z. 
Um, it's, that's, I think what to recognize is that's what's happening for the person. It's not just the work. It's probably the work, but it's also, you don't get me. And that, therefore, I don't feel good at what I'm doing. And that's the conversation you really have, even if it's about the specific ideas. But I have had it. And then I've had other people who we've had that conversation with who are really grateful. They kind of, you give them better language or better framing for their idea. And that's a great idea. But again, if you can't communicate it in a way that people understand it, it's, it's not successful. That that they adapt it and, and adopt it themselves, and so um, you can go both directions. And I think the right way, if you're that thought leader, is to try to see it as an opportunity. It's Clay anomalies wanted an opportunity to grow and get better because someone is helping you communicate it better. But it's that can be an emotional conversation. It can be, especially for the thought leadership professional. And in my experience, most people are very happy with the edits. Of a distinct minority are unhappy for reasons, stated reasons of, it's not in my voice anymore. How does the thought leadership professional, when they get that kind of criticism from a thought leader or an aspiring thought leader, how do they avoid feeling incompetent? Or, I thought I was a really good editor, and this person is basically saying, I'm not. Right. How does the thought leadership... There's an expectation alignment at the beginning, even, even if it's just saying out loud things that you think are obvious, but they may not. This will take us a few rounds, or I still don't, I don't know the editors at this publication, you know, whatever, wherever you're dealing with, or if you're editing the piece, you're an HBR editor, for example, editing the piece. This is how I usually work. It takes me a couple rounds. Are you up for this, this experience with me? Um, I know from my own experience of being a writer, that one of the most frustrating things is not the first set of hard edit. I'm okay with that. But it's when you suddenly get death by a thousand micro stress cuts, right? It's, it's the and that question from so-and-so, and we want to go back and visit this. We still don't like this graphic, and they come in layers. That's that's microstress on a plate. Um, and to me, that's worse than a truly collaborative editor trying to help me get better. Um, but it's when you're on the 15th round of questions and going back. So so expectation setting, conversation, this is how I work. Are you can you can you spare the time? This is what I'll need from you. I will need you to on these days be willing to review copies with me. We're going to go over it together. You and I can figure out what the best way to work together is. But but some of that will eliminate some of it, not all of it. But again, you can take out some. If you just take out some of the microstress, it's better. You know, you can make it a little bit better if you eliminate some of it. And just recognizing that these are microstresses and that, you know, there's like, you know, you you and Rob have come up with a, a, a very good label for this and, and an understanding. Of, it's just, just recognizing that this is what's going on. This is why. I feel bad that somebody doesn't like my edits, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is a micro stress. This is not like a divorce or a exactly, exactly dying, but this is a stress. This is it is recognizing it feels bad. It's also micro it, it, that if you not, I always say, if you name it, you can claim it. If you, you have language to talk about why this feels frustrating or why this this is real, this sort of dinged my morning. But you know what? I can get past this and we can communicate better or I can get past this and we can decide this one's not worth the fight. You know, this one, I'll like whatever it is. If you, you know, if you, if you have the language to, to understand what's happening, it's not going to take such a toll on you. Okay. In developing, uh, you and Rob developing the book, what were the three biggest challenges and how did you address them? So Rob and I had really never worked together before, which is funny. We'd worked on an article or two together, but um, I think I had met him in person well, he 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 came to my town to persuade me to work with him on several occasions for coffee. So I'd met him in, in person a couple of times, but suddenly we we're diving into a full-on book and then it became the pandemic. So we ended up having to figure out our ways to work together 
virtually and in the pandemic when, you know, who knew when, how long we'd be doing that. So, so developing a, a rhythm and a kind of candor and a way to collaborate that that's something that we figured out as we went along. And we started trying to implement some of the ideas of the book in our own work, which, you know, one of the simple ones is before you part at the end of a meeting, just take a couple minutes to recap. What do we just agree to? You know, are we on the same page? Because that could be, it's so common that we all leave a meeting thinking we're clear on what's happening. And either you forget or you just heard it slightly differently or you heard the things you wanted to. So we started trying to do that. And we also did things like starting our, you know, our calls again, which we're all on Zoom for a while, just with a couple minutes of human being connection, just so that we would laugh. We laugh, we found out that we really both have a great sense of humor together. And there was a lot of laughter. And that just takes some of the sting out of whatever the micro stress is because we've laughed first and we can laugh at even whatever conversation we're having that's giving feedback or, or whatever. So we did do that. So that was that was challenging. Um, we like all writers, you know, you fall in love with the bulk of your material and we have a lot to say. And uh, it it is a challenging discipline and we don't always get on the same page, but we did eventually to how do we get it down so that the idea won't fall in the forest and no one hears it, that that people will actually read this book. So that that was challenging. And I guess what we were doing, we just both became very conscious of the micro stress in our own life in general. So it was a good thing that came out of it as we, as we sort of started to recognize ourselves in a lot of the sort of examples we had gotten from the research, trying to rise above it and do the things that we recommend to people to kind of create a more multidimensional life, we call it a rich life. So, so practicing what we preached was also a really important thing we learned along the way as well. And that was hard, obviously, during the pandemic when, you know, especially in the first, whatever, 18 months or so when nobody could really go anywhere. It was really hard. So the Zoom, in a way, it was great because we were able to, the life was working on Zoom, but we both found ways to make sure we stayed connected with the people in our lives that were important to us beyond allowing ourselves to get consumed with work. And that was really especially important in the pandemic. So lastly, let's talk a little bit about your career in thought leadership. And especially, I had read that you, after you spoke with Clay Christensen, uh, you decided that I've got a great job at Harvard Business Review as editor, but I, I've got to go. Tell us about that and what led to that decision. What what was going on? Why would anyone do that? <laughs> That's a question. <laughs> I would Why would you do that? So I was I had become the editor of the magazine of Harvard Business Review, which was a job I considered to be the pinnacle of my career. I loved I did love the job, and I was like any editor of any busy magazine or any thought leader with a thousand things going on. I was just a busy. I was consumed by work. Busy, loved it, but my life at home was probably less of a priority to me than I would have admitted to myself. And the day that I realized that was when I was just looking for an extra article for the July-August double issue we were putting together. And I was trying to do something that wasn't super hard to work with. Academics, as you know, can be dense and challenging and take time. And so I was looking for something easy that I could help create. And I had heard that Clay Christensen had given a talk at the request of the graduating class that year was 2010. Um, that they found really moving. That's all I knew. I thought it was sort of a grads and dads. I could turn that into some kind of an essay. And I called him and I didn't know him well. Um, I called him and asked if I could come over and figure out how to turn that into something for HBR. And he said, yes, right away, which is amazing in hindsight, because I later learned he was one of the most busy men on the planet. Um, but I got over there pretty quickly. And as we were talking about what he talked to about the class, which is how do you make sure that the decisions you make in your career and in your personal life are ones that lead you to happiness, that are executing a strategy for being happy, not for just you know making the expedient decision or getting to some kind of career success that doesn't really make you happy. It was what he cared most about leaving his students with. For me personally, that just really hit home that my resource allocation process, the way I was spending my own time and energy was so heavily overweighted on my work 
that I, I was in danger of not having the life I wanted with my family. It was okay, but it wasn't terrible. It wasn't fantastic either. And I had my two kids were elementary school age and I just made that decision. It took a long time to execute it, but I wanted to recalibrate my life so that I didn't regret that I had missed some of those really important years with my kids really. So I, I, I did, I quit my job as the editor of Harvard Business Review a year later, it took me a year to be ready to do that. And then my husband and I took a kind of life sabbatical and moved to the UK for a couple of years. He's from the UK. I'd met him in the UK just so we could kind of be a family in a different way. And then, and then I kind of got myself back in, back into the game of doing things that mattered to me. So it wasn't that the job wasn't wonderful. It was wonderful. It was that I wanted my life to be wonderful too. So the job was all consuming, which I think is. I allowed it to be. I allowed it to be. It's a wonderful job, but you can, you know, we all know this, right? You can, anyone who has workaholic tendencies, anyone who's, whose mind is hardwired to want the return on investment, you get it at work much more quickly than you get it at home, right? You get a sale or you get someone talking about your article or you close a magazine or, or even put an expense account in, you get the return on investment, you get some kind of reward, you know, raising children, <laughs> building a good marriage. Those things, you don't see the ROI every single day. It sort of takes a long time before you know if you've done that well. And uh, I was, I recognized that, I, again, I was over-indexing on the rewards at work and maybe less on the ones that mattered more to me at home. Anything, um, I'm going to turn the mic over to you, so to say. Any questions you think I should have asked but didn't about this topic of micro-stresses and how they affect thought leaders and thought leadership professionals? What may I have missed? Well, one thing that we uh, talk about in the book that I think is important on all of the people you talked about, the professionals and the and the uh, thought leaders, is to recognize not just the microstresses that are happening to you, but the ones that you're creating for other people, because that can get in your way too, eventually. If you are a thought leader working with a professional and you're creating a lot of microstress for that professional, you are changing expectations almost all the time, or you are having confrontational conversations. Again, we're not talking about hostile, horrible ones, but ones in where you're kind of trying to achieve different things, or you're spewing stress on them. Um, that's going to come back and, and, and boomerang back on you eventually. So being mindful of what you are creating in other people is actually a really powerful way to eliminate some of it in your own life. And and you won't risk burning other people out or having people start deciding to drop the balls that are for you because they have too many other things going. So you can do it as much as it comes at you. And it's in your interest to think about the sometimes the micro stresses you're creating for other people because it'll make your work better in the long run. And is praising, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. For the thought leader to praise those who were there to help them, the editors, the speaker coaches, the social media marketers, praising those people you know, not just once a year or every five months, but praising them consistently for good effort. Is that something that's critical in this profession of thought leadership? I, I can't see how it's not because we're all human beings, right? And who wants to give the, even think of it in that person's, the people who you're not praising, if their life is filled with microstress, their job is filled with microstress, which balls are they going to choose to drop? The ones that don't make them feel good, right? And so maybe your work is is never with thanks and never with appreciation. I think personally, appreciation, genuine, sincere appreciation goes so far to making people want to work that do their best work for you and with you and challenging their identity, feeling good about themselves, right? You, you may not realize the impact. They may not realize the impact they've had on you because you never say it. They may not realize, thank you. I know it is really, really hard to get attention in the social media world. Thank you for, for the efforts and thank you for teaching me to do this better. And thank you for taking time to you know, go go behind me and clean up when I've screwed something up. But those things can matter so much to people who don't really. So personally, I think genuine, sincere appreciation 
not at the end of the year, not in a quarterly review. Yes, those times, but just when you feel them, say it, say it. I think that's going to remove some of the micro stress from their life and consequently your life as well. Most of the bosses you've had in your career fit that bill of the praise is there most of the time or not? I think I have had fantastic, actually. All of my bosses have been really fantastic at that. And um, it just made me want to do better for them. It just, I, I felt it feeling appreciated makes you feel great about yourself. I think it's it, it's more powerful than, you know, a, a raise. A raise is great. I mean, you want the raises, but feeling appreciated on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, especially when you're killing yourself for something, that goes so far. It's like fuel in the tank, putting fuel back into your emotional reserves tank. And I have been very fortunate that every boss that I've worked for, every manager I've worked for has been great at that. And I have tried in turn to be good at that as a manager as well. Yeah, very good. Okay, anything else I should have asked but didn't? Nope, I just think it's a great conversation. I think thought leadership is really hard being heard and for people to see what you have to say and saying something in a world that is noisy and attention spans move really quickly is super, super hard. So to the extent that you can make your life a little bit better by removing a little of the micro stress that you're causing and that you're receiving, I think that's a good thing. Excellent. Well, thank you, Karen. So where can people get more information about this wonderful book of yours? So I'm, I love to connect with people on LinkedIn as a start. So I'm happy to see any invites come in that way. And then robcross.org has a whole page on microstress um, and lots of little videos and some sort of diagnostics. And we have an app, actually, a free app that is in both Google Play and the um, Apple Store that I recommend. It's, it's called the Microstress Effect app, and it will help you kind of identify maybe five my top microstresses that you can work on, give you some exercises to do, and then send you some sort of reminders of the thing. So I think, we, and we're getting some really interesting feedback on the app. It's, it's anonymous, but it's, it's a great tool for you. So all of those things would be good things, I think. Very good. I think I could, uh, I could really use it. <laughs> let us know what you think <laughs> well again thank you so much karen and i uh, hope we can talk soon thank you bob i really enjoyed the conversation thank you karen and rob's book the microstress effect couldn't come at a better time for thought leadership professionals thought leaders and frankly anyone who feels the constant pressure to perform helping experts get known with their expertise is at the core of this profession of thought leadership it's a rewarding field, but it's also a highly demanding one. And what comes with any demanding profession, of course, is stress, including stress that may not be obvious. And those are the micro stresses that Karen Dillon talked about. I believe that how you manage the macro and the micro stresses of this profession will ultimately determine how effective you become and how much you enjoy your work. With that in mind, I wish you great success in managing the stresses in your work. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP. It's for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you left a like and if you shared the episode with your colleagues. You can find out more about Boudet Thought Leadership Partners at BoudetTLP.com.